Good morning to you folks. Very nice to be with you this morning. Do appreciate the invitation and thank you uh, uh, for the welcome this morning from the brethren there as they were leading the meeting. It is good to be with you as I said and uh, I am sorry I wasn't able to come on those previous occasions but I've been looking forward to this today and I trust the Lord will bless us as we do meet together in this fashion around his word. Please turn with me to 1 Timothy and chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now if you're an elder or a deacon here this morning, don't worry because we're going to the end of the chapter. We're not starting at the beginning. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. And simply want to speak to you this morning about the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. 1 Timothy 3, commencing to read at verse 14. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of his own inspired word. Let's just bow in a moment's prayer and then we will come to these scriptures together. Father, we thank thee for what we have enjoyed already here this morning. We thank thee, our Father, for the hymns that we've been able to sing and the great truths contained within them. We thank thee for being able to come before thee in prayer. We thank thee for what we've heard um, taught to the children this morning, and we pray thy blessing upon it all. And as we come to the Word of God, we thank thee that it is indeed the, reve- the revealed Word of God to man. And we thank thee for all that we learn there and all that we read there. And we pray as we consider just these few verses this morning that thou wouldst be pleased to presence thyself among us and to bless and to give us that understanding of the Word of God and help us, our God, to be responsive to it, help us to be faithful to it, help us to be obedient. We pray, Lord, for every need today, many individual needs, and we pray they'll be met as we consider this the truth of God. So we commit ourselves to thee, and we pray above all that the Lord Jesus Christ will be exalted. It's in his precious name that we ask all of these things. Amen. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote, How easy it is to read the scriptures and give a kind of nominal assent to the truth, and yet never to appropriate what it tells us. That can be particularly true of the epistles, and perhaps no more so than the pastoral epistles. The epistles that we find written to Timothy are full of instruction and warning about many matters which concern the church. But as Lloyd-Jones stated, such scripture can often be read and it can be quoted and it can be agreed with and yet for various reasons not be acted upon or not be acted upon fully, not be adhered to as it ought to be. The verses we have read are foundational verses. They bring us the whole way back to basics. And the fact that Paul penned them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit surely emphasizes how important these matters are. 
the importance of biblical truth. There are three things that I want you to consider with me this morning about the truth we find as we come to these closing verses of the chapter. I want you to consider, first of all, direction, and then we'll consider duty, and then we'll consider doctrine. Now, that might all sound very heavy, but it's not. And we need to make our way to verse 16 by considering verses 14 and 15, first of all. Think with me, first of all, this morning about the fact that there is direction here concerning the Christian. Direction concerning the Christian. Verses 14 and 15 of this chapter, there we find that Paul gives a reason for writing. He says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. Now, this chapter deals with church order. It deals with qualifications of elders and of deacons. It deals with conduct within the church. And when we reach verse 14, Paul states that he's writing to Timothy. He's hoping to come unto him shortly. But if he tarries that while longer, that Timothy will already have these instructions. That's the point. These were things that Paul would have taught directly had he been present. And he regarded them as so important that if he was to be delayed, they were still to be heeded. They were still to be taught. And therefore, there's an urgency about these matters. These things write I unto thee. Well, what things is Paul talking about? I think it's fair and it's consistent to regard the things referred to as not only the content of chapter 3, but indeed the content of the whole epistle. Furthermore, although he's, he's writing to Timothy personally, the instruction that Paul is delivering is applicable not only to Timothy as an individual, not only to those holding office within the church, but to the church in general. In other words, these are matters, these matters in question here that we have before us apply to every believer. There appears to be nothing in the context that would present any restriction otherwise. Whenever Paul writes that thou mightest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself, the words used there mean how one ought to conduct himself. And therefore, these instructions are not only to Timothy. They have a wider application. They are inclusive of believers in general. They are things that relate to behavior, the behavior of individual believers. They relate to God's order. And specifically in the earlier part of this chapter, qualifications for ministers, for elders, for deacons. Those qualifications and the conduct expected of those carrying out the responsibilities are very solemn things. They're very important things. And we're not preaching about those matters and teaching about them today, but we should consider in passing that God's order is very important not only in relation to these functions, but in relation to any matter. There appears to be a mindset sometimes prevalent in the church in the modern day that conduct is something which is secondary. But if that's the case, then why has God given instructions? Some very specific about many matters and how they must be conducted. And the question for us as believers is how do we respond? How are we to respond? Well, first and foremost, what do the scriptures teach? That's the first question on our lips. It must be. And secondly, where specific instruction is not apparent, 
then what principles should be applied? But in every case, friends, our conduct must surely be in reverence to the Lord. When we think about ministry, where God provides instruction as to how ministry is to be conducted of any kind, then we, his servants, must adhere to that. When we think about our worship, some say that the form of worship is not that important, but it is important, at least to some degree, because how we speak of him is important, and how we sing about him is important, and what we sing is important, and how we praise is important. We think of the matters of headship. God has given specific instruction in his word as to his order in relation to headship. There are responsibilities for the man. There are responsibilities for the woman. And these are holy things. They're not matters for personal preference. They're not matters for cultural opinion. And there are many examples, and these are only a few that I've given But there's an underlying principle as to how we must approach them. Friends, we do so in accordance with the Scriptures. We need to be honest enough to say that, don't we? To acknowledge that that God has given instruction in His Word regarding all of these matters and where specific instruction is not apparent, at the very least our approach must be to conduct ourselves in reverence to the Lord, to do all to the glory of God. He is the Lord of glory. How could that not affect the conduct Of the believer. As regards matters that have been made controversial in our day, when our focus is lifted off ourselves and lifted to Him, believers individually and collectively will find that those matters will then and only then be properly addressed and properly administered. The crime may come out what about unity? Biblical unity is not based on compromising truth. Truth is the foundation. It is the common denominator of biblical unity. A.W. Tozer writes, There is something wrong with our Christianity if we can carelessly presume that if we do not like a biblical doctrine and choose to ignore it, there is no harm done. God has never instructed us that we should weigh his desires in the balance of our own judgments if we turn away from the authority of God's word to whose authority do we yield. There's direction concerning the Christian. Secondly, think about this. There is duty concerning the church. Duty concerning the church. If you're familiar with with Psalm 15, I think that it provides a lovely little parallel here when we think about these things. That psalm commences, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? The tabernacle and abiding there, abiding with God. The concept is that of dwelling, a dwelling place. The concept of home, the concept of a family group. That psalm focuses very much on conduct. It focuses on behavior, as does verse 14 of our text this morning. But here, within that particular text, the the family group does not concern Israel. It doesn't concern the tabernacle. Paul is teaching concerning the church, how to behave in the house of God. Behavior is something which is very important in the context of family, isn't it? And here in 1 Timothy 3 and 15, the word house that we find is the Greek word oikos, which means household. 
So here too is included the concept of a family. This is the church, a people which God himself has redeemed. These letters were written to Timothy for a purpose. They were relevant to him as a minister. They're relevant to the church. The doctrine is applicable generally to the whole church and also specifically to the church in which he ministered. This particular letter outlines the duty of both the minister and of the church. And we read here, the house of God, how thou ought to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. <clears throat> Behavior. Gordon Dahl, and you may have heard this quotation, I'm quite sure you have, but he once said, most middle class Americans tend to worship their work to work at their play, and to play at their worship. And friends, as saints of God, of course, we dare not function in that way. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. What a great responsibility that is. And we are to appreciate it, and we are to embrace it. Now, what do these words mean? He speaks here of a pillar. What's a pillar? You know that it's a support. And in this context, it emphasizes the church's responsibility to maintain doctrine both by teaching and by practice. We know that pillars, whilst carrying out what they're designed to do as supports, they're also often decorative, aren't they? They're to be beheld, some of them. Items of great beauty and of great design. What does the world see when it looks at the church? How do we behave before them, what message is sent out by our conduct? And then he speaks of ground, uses that term ground. Again, ground meaning a support or a bulwark or a stay. There are many different types of stay that are in use in the present day. We see them in structural engineering. We see them in architecture. We see them in various mechanical installations and many more applications, but their principle is always the same. They must be of sufficient quality, strength, and design to support the load that they're in place to keep. And Paul states here that the church is the pillar and ground of what? Of the truth. The truth. Now that thrills us, doesn't it? But it also fills us with awe. We often consider, and quite rightly, God as our stay. And as our anchor, we see it in hymnology, don't we? Stayed upon Jehovah. Hearts are fully blessed. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark, never failing. But here we find that God, in all of his infinite wisdom, has given his redeemed people a vast responsibility. The fact is that a local church will be ill-equipped to proclaim the truth to the world if that same truth is not expounded consistently and perpetually and effectually within said church. And we can thank God in a church like this that that's exactly what happens. Because any church that doesn't have that must obtain it. And any church that has lost that must regain it. And any church that has that must maintain it because these are serious matters. There are many today and they're clambering after experience and it's at the expense 
of the revealed Word of God. Many are trying to evangelize without the message or the full message of the gospel or with a weak message. And maybe it's for fear of giving offense. Maybe it's for fear of appearing harsh. But friends, good news can only be described as good when it's set against something bad in the first place. And if we fail to explain to a soul without Christ that he's a sinner and all that that entails, and all of the consequences that that brings, then friends, what good news will he realize the need of? A gospel message that doesn't address the bad news of man's condition and sin, and the righteous judgment of that sin before delivering the good news that salvation is available through Jesus Christ our Lord, and his work on the cross is not a true presentation of the gospel. The reason that the church exists is to present the truth of Christ. Our personal needs are not our focus whenever we attend church. Those needs are fulfilled as a result of a church functioning in the way that it ought to function, in accordance with the Scriptures. Doctrine of the church must not be ignored. We can't resign ourselves to just doing our best or following a loose pattern. These doctrines that we're reading of this morning and all of the others are solemn and they're very important. This is God's order. There's direction concerning the Christian. There's duty concerning the church. And Paul now goes on to mention specific doctrine. And it's doctrine concerning the Christ. The mystery of godliness. What the church should concern herself with. This mystery is something that is revealed to her. It's revealed to believers and we ought to be taken up with it. What Paul lists here is what the Scriptures teach and what the church believes, at least what she should believe. The Bible contains doctrine. This is teaching. The Bible is where the gospel is explained. It is where truth is proclaimed and taught. And this is where man will discover how he can be saved. That salvation will not be obtained by taking little bits and pieces of information and ideas from from here and there and ideologies from here and there and, and, and cramming them all together and trying to create a solution to the problem of sin. The gospel is contained in the pages of this book. And if the means of anyone's salvation lies in anything other than what is taught within here, then they are placing their hope in something or someone that cannot save them. The Scriptures are very clear about man's condition and sin, about his need of salvation, about who God is, about the person of Christ, about the only way of salvation. Consider these things as we come to this verse, friends. Paul has highlighted the responsibility Of believers. He has stated the responsibility of the church. And now he says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Without controversy, in other words, confessedly, obviously. In other words, there's no dispute. No dispute about the mystery of godliness being something which is great. It is great. In other words, in quantity or degree, it is something which is clearly important. Great is the mystery of godliness. You know what a mystery is. It's a secret. But why is this godliness referred to as a mystery? Because these doctrines that it encompasses were not revealed in the Old Testament. At least they were not revealed fully. 
but now they're revealed in the New Testament. With Christ's coming, they have been revealed. What exactly is this mystery? What does it include? Well, primarily our answer must be that God became man. Because we must acknowledge that what follows here is all of Christ. It's all about him. But as part of this mystery, friends, not also the wonder that we as believers in him can be made godly. Again, only because of him, but a wonder that involves us nonetheless. What is godliness? Godliness could be translated as piety. Piety, now that, that's a word which is often considered in a negative sense. But its primary meaning is positive in the light of Scripture such as this. What is godliness? It is God-likeness. Now the obvious reference is to Christ himself. It takes our thoughts, doesn't it, to texts like Hebrews 1 and 3, describing the Lord Jesus Christ as the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person. And however, also God is, is making us as believers this way, godly, because of what follows in the text. It's all of him. It only comes by grace through faith in Christ. We are otherwise ungodly. We are otherwise unrighteous. These matters are Christ-centric. The doctrine, the truths, our response, they relate to his person. They relate to his work. And they are for us all to acknowledge and to meditate upon and to understand and to teach and to preach. Paul was adamant about his focus whenever he came to the Corinthians, wasn't he? And when, when he wrote to them, he says in 1 Corinthians 2, and those first couple of verses, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He was not concerned about worldly wisdom. He was not concerned about philosophy. He was not concerned about qualifications. He was concerned about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe there's someone here this morning, and at some point, or maybe even now, you find yourself being given the responsibility of preaching, or maybe you will have that responsibility in the future. There is advice to those who carry out any form of ministry for the Lord. There will be those who will judge you according to your education. They will judge you according to your academic qualification. Some of them will be unbelievers. Sad to say, some of them will be believers. You may be patronized. You may be laughed at. You may be scorned and often with incredible bitterness. What is the advice? Follow hard after Christ. Have the attitude of Paul. Know him in the fullest sense that it's possible to know him. This side of glory. Learn about the cross. And keep preaching those things as they are revealed and as they are interpreted by the word of God. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And then comes a summary. It's possibly a song of the early church. It's possibly a creed. In any case, it's a wonderful summary of blessed truth. And therefore, friends, after specific instruction in this chapter regarding elders, regarding deacons, why does the chapter conclude with what is written in verse 16? 
Because these are truths in relation to Christ. Indeed, they're very important truths in relation to Christ. These are fundamentals. Despite what people may say, a fundamentalist is not someone who is to be reviled, you know. These are things which we as the church are to proclaim, not out of empty tradition, but because they are fundamental to the church, fundamental to the gospel. Now, what of this doctrine that's included in the summary in verse 16? I've often said this, looking at this verse, I feel like a little boy when I come to truths like this. These are vast truths. These are truths which cannot be exhausted. And we can meditate upon them. We can't decide, you know, that our our intellect or the extent of our faith should dictate how much or how deeply we think about God. God has revealed so much of himself to us in the scriptures. This is about a personal relationship. And a personal relationship requires knowledge of the person. It's not possible to meditate upon him if we're ignorant as to his person. It's not possible to meditate upon him if we know little about him. It's not possible to grow in our knowledge of him if we make no effort to learn about him. We often talk about the dangers of head knowledge alone, don't we? And that's true, but we need to bear in mind that we do require information. We do require that level of head knowledge, that understanding alongside our personal knowledge of Christ in order that our relationship with him will develop and will deepen, in order that our worship may be enhanced and our love for him and our appreciation of him will grow. And therefore, friends, as we come to these truths, these are highly devotional. This is where we wanted to get to this morning. Take a look at verse 16. First of all, we see incarnation. God was manifest in the flesh. There are vast truths in Scripture that can become faded with familiarity and with lack of consideration on our part. And often, this can be one of those truths. It trips off the tongue, doesn't it? And particularly in the month of December, it can sometimes trip off the tongue. God was manifest in the flesh. And therefore we must stop and we must take that quality time and and meditate upon this here today and, and each day ourselves. Consider it and appreciate it as fully as possible. This is a mighty truth. What grace is evident right here? When a man appreciates his sinful, his depraved condition... and and that of the whole of mankind, and he contrasts that with the holiness of our sovereign God. What an astounding truth this is, that God, who is spirit, in grace made himself visible to us, was revealed in the person of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. God was manifest in the flesh. God, we can learn so much about God through the names that are attributed to him alone throughout the scriptures. In particular, consider again Exodus 3 and 14. God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. The one that is, the one that ever will be, the ever existing one, he that is to come, God of the past, God of the present, 
God of the future, the one who dwells within and out with all three tenses, the one who inhabiteth eternity, was manifest in the flesh. Back in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, Paul speaks of the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. The apostle John, chapter 4 and 24 says, uh, speaks of the one who is described as spirit. God is spirit. The one who we describe as God of all. And even that word in our language has limitations. We, we, we don't even possess the vocabulary that we need to fully explain him. The I am, the one who said, beside me there is no other, stepped into time to redeem us. God was manifest in the flesh. Solomon prayed unto the Lord with the people standing by, and he said in 1 Kings 8 and 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. And friends, even more than that, even greater than that, we gather here this morning in the knowledge that not only did this great God presence himself in a temporary measure within the veil of the temple, but he was manifest in flesh, and he dwelt amongst men in the person of his Son. Oh, the wonder of the fact that God should do this. Do we know him well enough that it astounds us? Do we consider it often, who God is, and the significance of the fact that he came to dwell among us? A God whose attributes include eternality and self-existence, and self-sufficiency, and sovereignty, and righteousness, and holiness, and yet he steps into time to redeem us. Why? Because it was the only way that sinful man could know him. God is unapproachable in his glories in that sense as regards our understanding without his revelation. As one has said, an image was required that man could know God. But that image could only ever be provided by God himself. Colossians 1 and 15, Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. God who is spirit, revealed in Christ. But not only a revelation in flesh, but also, friends, Christ reveals every attribute of God. Love, grace, mercy, sovereignty, holiness, righteousness, all of them. The person of Christ. Friends, what we believe about this matters. He's the image of the invisible God. The writer to the Hebrews describes him as the express image of his person. Christ is the exact representation of the Father's person. You remember when Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Friends, Christ is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. We don't need to look for something more. We don't need to look for something else. And is there a rebuke here for us also this morning? Have I been so long time with you? You have heard my word. You have seen my revelation. And yet hast thou not known me? He has been revealed. The Word, the image of God, all that we need. And friends, we dare not ask for more. 
an image, a statue cannot assist our contemplation, our meditation, our worship of God. If we want to worship, we look to Christ. If we want to know God, we look to Christ. O Christ in thee, my soul hath found and found in thee alone the peace, the joy I sought so long, the bliss till now unknown. Incarnation, God was manifest in the flesh. I better do the next few a little bit quicker. There's commendation. He was justified in the spirit. Justified. What's it mean? It means to be declared righteous. We look to Christ and we see the spirit of God at work. We see it in his life. His life was one of obedience. He did the will of the Father. There was nothing in his character or his conduct or his ministry or his work that could be questioned. In Matthew 3, we see him at his baptism. We read of the the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him and the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We see him there in Matthew 17 at his transfiguration and we find the same statement there because he had God's approval. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God. We see his holiness. We consider his impeccability. His purity. We see his miracles. Nicodemus said, no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So we see these things in his life. We see it in his death. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The perfect spotless sacrifice for sin. And friends, we find it in his resurrection. Romans 1 and 4, declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Oh, the importance of the resurrection of our Savior. He was who he said he was. Men denied it. Men still deny it, but it doesn't change the truth. Incarnation, God was manifest in the flesh. Commendation, justified in the Spirit. Then we have realization, he was seen of angels. Seen. What does the word mean? Well, it's very simple. He was beheld by them. And friends, he was beheld by both holy and by fallen angels, his, his creation. There are references to angels, as we read the scriptures, from his birth and throughout his ministry and at his death and at his resurrection and at his ascension. What humility, eternal sonship, now in the flesh, seen of angels. What a phenomenon for them to behold. God, as we've said, is spirit, and yet now they look upon him. The one by whom the worlds were made, the one by whom all things were created and consist and are sustained, the one who is above all. He had created those angels. He had appointed their individual and their collective rank. They beheld his glory, the one who is eternal in the heavens, but now they saw him manifested, unveiled, revealed in flesh, not in the heavenlies, not in the splendor of heaven, not in the glory, but on the earth. As a babe in the frailty of human frame, in childhood, in manhood, dwelling amongst men. Do you see the simplicity of it? They saw it. Do you see the poverty? 
Do you see him experiencing humanity? And he's experiencing it in perfection, but he's experiencing it nonetheless, dwelling in a fallen, sin-cursed world, the world that he had come to save. Friends, what humiliation that God should send his son to die. The CEO of any major company is seen by few within the organization. I've never met our CEO. I've never seen her in the flesh. The king of our nation and of of any other is never seen by the vast majority of even his soldiers and certainly his subjects. And yet the God of glory was seen of angels as he walked this sin-cursed earth. There was realization he was seen of angels. Then there's proclamation. He was preached unto the Gentiles. The Gentiles, the nations. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Friends, it's the work of God, and he provides the power to carry it out where there is faithfulness to proclaim it. Who's the message for? It's for all mankind. What is the message? That man can be reconciled to God. And God's grace is evident once again. The message is not only for Israel now, it's for all nations. How difficult for the Jew to understand. It's not the way that they had anticipated it, but it's God's way. And believer today, we we appreciate the grace of God. We must appreciate it that we have heard this message. The gospel goes forth and you and I are to be faithful in taking it to others. We are to be witnesses unto him. Then we find that there's acceptation because this message was believed on in the world. You see, the message has an effect and the effect is belief. The fundamental question for every individual is, do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? That he is the son of God that he is co-equal with the Father, that his sacrifice on the cross alone is sufficient to save. And for the believer, what a blessing it is to work in cooperation, as it were, with God, doing his will. The Great Commission was obeyed. We read through the New Testament and we see that. And God's will was done. But for the unbeliever, friends, if you're here this morning and you're without Christ, do you not understand the guilt? Do you not understand the sin and the condition that you're in, that it's deserved of judgment, that there needs to be faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? There needs to be repentance from that sin towards God. And the question comes, will you believe on him? Friends, listen, there's incarnation. God was manifest in the flesh. There's commendation. He's justified in the spirit. There's realization, seen of angels. There's proclamation, preached unto the Gentiles. There's acceptation, believed on in the world. And finally, there's ascension, received up into glory. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. There was glorification following suffering, following that perfect work. Friends, it's a finished work. We have resurrection, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and all the assurance that is associated with it. And then he ascended. A perfect man 
in the glory. And he's there on your behalf and on mine. His present position, his present ministry, his work as head of the body, as head of the church, as great high priest, he is interceding on our behalf. And that's the story so far. And yet there's more to come. Listen, Acts 1 and 10. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. His second coming, friends. Are you waiting upon it? Are you looking forward to that day? Our blessed hope. And we shall know him. Friends, in conclusion this morning, this is the truth that we, his church, are to proclaim. It's God's church. We are his servants. And we've grave responsibility, don't we? Both individually and collectively. As regards our conduct and as regards our ministry. But what a message we have to proclaim. In his book, Developing the Leader Within You, John C. Maxwell writes this. A dog food company's newest product was not selling well. The president called in his management staff. How's our advertising, he asked. Great, replied the advertising executive. This ad campaign will probably win the industry's top awards this year. All right, the president continued. How about our product design? The production manager spoke up. It's great, boss. Our our new label and packaging scored high in every marketing test that we ran. Okay, well, how's our sales staff? Are they doing their job? The sales manager was quick to respond. Oh, sure, our, our people are the best in the business. And then there was a heavy silence as the president thought about what he'd just heard. We've got great advertising, great packaging, A top-notch sales force, yet this product is coming in dead last in the dog food market. Does anyone have any idea what the problem might be? And everyone looked at each other, and finally one brave soul spoke up. It's those stupid dogs, sir. They just won't touch the stuff. They had all the activity. They had all the packaging. They had all the bells and whistles, but they'd lost the focus of the quality of their product and they were failing because of it. Now listen, I hope it's not irreverent for me to give an illustration like that, but we have more than a product. We have more than some sales pitch. We have a message that changes lives. We have the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, never cheapen the message. Never cheapen it. These are holy things that we are handling, and there is power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. May God be pleased to bless his word to our hearts this morning. Let's just bow in a moment's prayer. Father, we would come before thee conscious this morning, having read these scriptures of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and all of his holiness and righteousness. And we're conscious, Lord, of the importance of the message. And we're conscious of the importance of the church at large, the universal church, and conscious of the importance of the local church and of the individual church members within it. And we pray, our Father, that we would never cheapen this message. We would never cheapen the things that we have read, particularly in that closing verse of the chapter that we have looked at this morning. We thank thee for these truths. And we pray that we'll be faithful in living them out. 
In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Amen. Friends, let's close uh, with a hymn this morning, this part of our service. It's number 120. Number 120. In your book, take the name of Jesus with you. Child of sorrow and of woe, will joy and comfort give you. Take it then wherever you go. We'll just take time to sing the first and the last verses of number 120, please. <laughs>